Welcome to Adulting on the Spectrum. Uh, I am Andrew Comero, an Autistic Certified Financial Planner. I co-run Adulting on the Spectrum with my host, Eileen Lamb. Hey everyone, I'm Eileen Lam. I'm an author and photographer from France, living in Texas. I'm autistic and my two sons are on the spectrum as well. In this podcast, we want to highlight real voices of autistic adults, you know, not just inspirational stories, but we want to hear about everyone on the spectrum. We want to give a voice to people like us. And today our guest is uh, Fiona. Do you want to introduce yeah, yourself? Hi, yeah. Um, so my name is Fiona O'Leary and I'm from Ireland, from Cork, Ireland, and I have five children. Three of them are autistic and I'm, I'm also on the spectrum and um, I'm an autism advocate for eight years now, campaigning against um, dangerous uh, quack treatments for autism and just really talking a lot about women on the spectrum as well. I've got a diploma in autism studies and um, I have lived um, a life, half my family is autistic. And I suppose I want to just talk about a few issues in relation to that. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for being here. Mm. So we start by asking our guests how they like to identify themselves because, you know, there are so many differences, mm -hmm. um, autistic, person with autism. And also, if you could give us your uh, preferred pronouns, that would be great. Well, I identify, I'm she I'm, or her, and um, I, I say I'm autistic, but also um, that I have Asperger's because that is my diagnosis. Um, I don't really get hung up on those things per se, because I think what's so important when autistic people are talking or trying to give their life experience of being on the spectrum that we don't, um, you know, word police them all the time and how, how they express themselves. And I've seen that as a problem in my advocacy work so if someone says there are Asperger's or autistic or with autism that doesn't really annoy me as long as they're getting a chance to talk about their lived experience of being on the spectrum. Uh, and so one thing that's interesting too right is I think it's only in the United States right do we really have the DSM-5 otherwise is it ICD-10 or 11 whichever one it is or whatever manual that we're you know is using elsewhere um, and it's also what people know, what they were, you know, diagnosed with. And at the end of the day, you know, I feel like a person should be able to refer to themselves. However, a person would like to refer to themselves without being shamed for it. Um, so no, yeah, thank I you. That, I, think, I think that's really important. I think that's becoming a big problem in the community is where people are expressing themselves and they're being berated for using you know, words that maybe other people don't agree with, but like the, the goal for me is giving people the independence and the platform to express themselves because it's very hard for a lot of autistic people to do that, you know, even for myself, you know, I can talk, but I have communication problems too, which is part of being on the spectrum. So when someone has the, I suppose, the courage to come out and talk about issues, um, I think we need to support them and not start attacking them about how they, you know, express themselves on the spectrum. And, and actually talking about just communication issues, and I got a little sidetracked, which I mean, that will absolutely happen, is mm -hmm. I really hate voice memo recording, and I really <laughs> hate everything audio, and I will not listen to voicemail messages, like if the transcription isn't recorded. Um, mm -hmm. But or but I will do my best to try to meet somebody where they are. So assuming I'm in a place where I can listen to the recording, 
Like mm -hmm. uh, Fiona, you've sent voice memo recordings, and <laughs> I I will listen to. It's not my preference, yeah. but yeah. you know I type back. That's probably not your preference, right? So just exactly, meeting yeah. people sure. where they are and recognizing mm -hmm. that nobody's an expert just because you have autism doesn't mean that you're an expert in all things autism, right? You're just an expert in your autism, right? Yeah. That is the most, well, that, that is key. I mean, that is so key because it is a spectrum and we're all different on the spectrum. Like there's, we, you know, I've got three boys on the spectrum. Yes, we have a lot of common traits, but we're very, very different. And, um, you know, they express themselves differently to me and I to them. And that's great because if we were all doing the same thing, we'd be like, you know, we'd, we'd be, it's not, for me, it's very important that we're allowed to express how we feel comfortably. That's the most important thing. You, so you say you have Asperger's, uh, and mm -hmm. because that's the diagnosis you you got, that's how you were diagnosed. Can you tell us a bit more about your autism journey? Like, when were you diagnosed? What oh. was it like? I was diagnosed in college. Actually, I was studying autism studies in Cork University College, and um, I mean, I knew Eileen and Andrew that I was on the spectrum all my life really, truthfully. And I tried to get a diagnosis many times, especially um, when my second son was diagnosed because I would have gone to my doctor, you know, kind of telling him that I had anxiety issues. I had struggles with like uh, communication, social skills. And I could see in my boys myself, it was almost like me as a child, really the same. And I was turned away. You know, doctors then were saying, um, this is a male condition you know, that women don't get diagnosed autistic. And um, that went on for many years. And then in 2013, I just went and got a diagnosis myself. And I had a bad experience the first time. Actually, the person that uh, diagnosed me wasn't qualified, which was really um, a horrendous experience for me. And for other people that had gone through her as well, it was a woman in Ireland, I'm not naming her. Um, then I went and I got a diagnosis through the, the health board here in Ireland, which took longer, but it was a completely different experience from the person I'd gone to prior, meaning I met with them several times. It was much more thorough and I was diagnosed autistic. Asperger's was my, the term, but like that didn't really, you know, I didn't get hung up on the wording. What was important for me was that I realized who I was. I realized that, you know, I'm just a different operating system. You know, my brain is wired differently because I don't know what it was like for anyone else here. But when you get a diagnosis as an adult, I think you spend a lot of your, you know, youth trying to fit in, trying to feel like you can be someone like everyone else. Um, masking is a word I will use, which is often used with women, especially. Um, so really the stress around trying to not be me growing up was terrible and then when I realized you know that I am like my boys it was liberating I felt you know almost that I could uh, belong in myself and um, it took many years Eileen and Andrew for me to kind of accept that as well so when you get a diagnosis you've got that that you know you're diagnosed then you have to kind of process that and autistic people it can take longer but um, it's definitely changed my life in a good way you know, I don't feel the need to put pressures on myself where I did before. And like, if people don't get me, 
that's fine. I don't want to change me for other people. So it was a positive thing in my life. Mm. And um, it's helped me understand. I mean, I think that I can bring something to the family, being autistic as well, that I understand the boys maybe a little bit deeper, you know, than other people because I understand the challenges they have better because I, I have them too. And now you had been trying to get a diagnosis for quite a while mm -hmm. and it's obviously getting a diagnosis is very different, not just in different countries, but depending where you live in a certain country and different, you know, socio, you know, economic statuses. Um, although I've had a diagnosis other places, I just happen to be close to Yale that has lots of studies. So they will, of course, you know, test you for free if you go through and be a guinea pig in a study. And so I've had the pleasure of doing that among other diagnoses, but um, you face a lot of uphill battles, but that was many years ago, right? We're getting close to like a decade ago. Do you mm -hmm. think if you were to go through that same process today, that you would have faced as many uphill battles or no, has- No, 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 I don't think so. I think that we've improved a lot, especially understanding women. Mm. Um, and I know that from engaging with other women who have um, you know, had a diagnosis in recent years, there was definitely a bias there. And actually it's interesting for me because I actually got all my notes through Freedom of Information Act because I had seen psychologists in my teens, you know, I'd gone through that. I had an eating disorder in my teens, which, you know, can be very common in autistic females. There was a lot of, um, I don't know, I suppose red flags there that were overlooked. But when I read my notes, it really upset me because it was so like um, a classic autism diagnosis, you know, literally what, the, what they were writing. But because I was a girl, I couldn't get that diagnosis. And I, and I think that's really important because I think when you don't have those supports when you're a teenager or when you're growing up, you know, it, it can be, it's a game, like if I, I would have liked to have had that diagnosis, maybe to support me going to college or in my schoolwork, because I do, you mentioned other conditions. I have dyspraxia. Um, I have terrible eyesight, which, you know, has caused huge problems in my life. And um, I suppose I was, very much of a daydreamer which is what they noted for me in school but it wasn't that it was really to do with me being autistic um you know not having those supports in place like my boys have in school it's like a completely different time so um i kind of grieved that a bit a little bit too and then you have to try to explain to your family <laughs> you know um and then what do they say you don't look autistic you know this kind of thing that comes with that um so it, there's so many things that are really wrapped up in a diagnosis and I'm still processing that diagnosis at the age of 49. I mean, I'm nearly 50. Um, it's something that um, I think will take time for me to go through because it's like every day waking up, you don't wake up and think I'm autistic, you know, but it's like most of my life I wasn't diagnosed. I'm only diagnosed like since 2013. So the rest of my life, you know, I was, I suppose, looked on maybe as being eccentric, you know, as, a, as somebody that was a bit strange as a child. That's what my mother would have called me and always going missing, <laughs> you know, um, and always asking questions, a very inquisitive child. But like, I do think that, that there's a difference between that. And I suppose that's why I think getting a diagnosis from a professional is really important, you know. I 
relate to so many of what you just said. I mean, I feel like you described me uh, as a child, like I was always getting in trouble because I was looking out of the windows, but I was also so curious at, you know, amazing grades back then, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I was shy, which, I mean, so many things that passed as personality traits. Oh, well, she's shy. She's a daydreamer. Oh, well, she's smart. And then you put all the pieces together and it's like, how did they miss this? You know, like my mom would have to prompt me to say hi, like at the bakery in France, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, like say hi. Like, and then I would repeat like that type of things. And I would just focus on like giving exact change with coins instead of like, you know, interacting, like everything was there. And then it took 25 years and being in the US to get a diagnosis because in France, I mean, even kids who are like more severe and obvious are still not getting diagnosed in 2021. So yeah, I stood no chance. I, I know I know a lot about in France actually and autism and uh, how they view autism. Um, I've actually helped a French family. They moved to Ireland actually from France because of the kind of, you know, the situation you're referring to. Um, so it is different from country to country, but what is really, I suppose, the most awful thing about being a woman is there is that kind of element of, you know, you know, maybe you're just tired, or, you know, maybe you're just, um, you know, not, you know, you're stressed or something. I had a lot of that said to me. And I remember when, when I got my diagnosis that my doctor actually apologized to me. And that was very good for me because I felt almost like, you know, they weren't listening. And it's sad. And actually, when I when I did get my diagnosis, I was on Irish television talking about this women on the spectrum. And I met a woman and she was in her 70s. There was like we did a talk in the college and she came up to me and she thanked me because she had been diagnosed really most of her life, but kind of hidden away. So that's the other thing is when you get a diagnosis, sometimes people don't want to talk about that. And I felt compelled to actually be kind of um, a spokesperson maybe for women in Ireland and it's okay you know we're not gonna we're not we're not gonna eat you we're just people um to be positive I suppose about autism and I, I think that's the most important thing um but also to remember you know that different different autistic people have different needs and challenges and that's my real concern now as an advocate is the divide uh, that we're seeing in the community and how people talk about autism from their own experience as being the only experience it's not like my son you know is very disabled and autism is a disability and that's fine too and i don't have a problem saying i'm disabled but there seems to be a problem around that word now as well and um so what i want to say is a lot of autistic people need supports if we say autism is not a disability they don't get those supports like you asked me about ireland and autism it's very hard, very hard for parents to get supports here. We have a government that doesn't have any, um, we've no Autism Act, we have no legislation. So if you've got supports for your child in school, they can be taken away anytime. And that, that's what I fight for because I know that my boys couldn't go to school. They wouldn't be in school unless they had um, a special needs assistant with them. And my son um, actually did very serious exams last year all by himself during the pandemic. And he did brilliantly. He did so well in his grades and he enjoys school. He enjoys school, but without the supports, he wouldn't be doing that. So if I say autism is not a disability, can you help him 
he doesn't get the supports. And um, I think that's really important. So if we keep saying that it's not a disability, you are going to jeopardize supports for autistic people that need them, not as a luxury, but as a lifeline, a necessity. And uh, I see that happening more now with advocates who I used to admire, um, that they seem to not be thinking about people like my son, you know? Yeah. And I, 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 that worries me. It worries me that when I'm the future, that that will be a serious situation where we will see autistic people being institutionalized, which is what happened in Ireland up until 1992. My son was born in 1992. There were people on the spectrum in institutions in Ireland. And what my goal as a mother, not as a companion, but as a mother, is to have as much independence to my children, meaning that they can do things for themselves. Um, but to get there, they need the supports or the tools. I, I use the words tools to help them achieve that. It's not something that they're equipped with. And, and that's what I think is really important. Um, helping children on the spectrum isn't a bad thing. Helping any child isn't a bad thing. If we don't teach children, they can't learn and they can't become independent. It's kind of just logic to that. And what I see a lot now in the community is like, don't be talking about your child. Don't be giving them interventions. I mean, I've seen people criticize um, speech and language therapy. You know, don't help your child to communicate. My son couldn't talk when he was four. He couldn't speak. He didn't start talking till after the age of four. And um, he did have speech and language therapy and would have used communication cards, which I, I now know is linked to ABA, PECS, the system of PECS. Um, but that wasn't a bad thing for him. You know, he, he, it helped him and he loves talking. He never stops talking. Um, so I've had, I've had people give out to me about that, which really, really upsets me. Since you're talking about it, um, ABA, um, you know, my oldest son is eight and he has like 20 words. So he's basically nonverbal, non-speaking, uses AAC to communicate. Um, that's what you learn in ABA therapy. Um, ABA is very controversial and I know we, we don't agree uh, that I'm, you know, I'm in favor of ABA and you're not. And I'm so thankful that we're able to have this discussion, you know, in a respectful way, uh, even though we don't agree. Um, can you tell us what you don't like about ABA? Well, I, I'll tell you, my, my, when Dylan, my son is Dylan, my first son, he's, um, he's my son that has had cancer as well, which I will talk about as well. When he was diagnosed in 1994, um, they wanted Dylan to go to a school. It was like an ABA school away from me. Like he would go away from Monday till Friday. And I was like, no, <laughs> he's not going away. Um, and I suppose at that time, and what I want to say about ABA is that there has been abuses of ABA, meaning it's down to the person, like the, the, the teacher or whoever is, there's been cases of that, like, of course I'm against that. And I think that's what ABA has kind of been um, pushed out there by a lot of advocates that it's abuse. But like what I read today, and I did do this today prior to talking to you, Eileen, is I, I looked up ABA as of now, and what it means, and it, it means positive reinforcement. So it means like you reward a child um, for doing 
something good, be it their homework or whatever. And re in the reality of things, like I think that we're, we're doing that anyway with our children every day. You know, it's like, you know, put your, put your socks or your dirty clothes in the washing machine, you know, good boy or good girl or whatever. So like even in school here in Ireland, um, what they do is they do rewards with, with, with the children anyway. But with my sons, um, they might get a star, you know, like a star on their shirt or they'll get a certificate like the best student. And I, I suppose what I'm seeing now is that's wrong as well. So it's like positive reinforcement I don't have a problem with. And if that's what ABA is, and it's carried out, you know, if it's carried out in a non-abusive way, I don't have a problem with that. What I have a problem with ABA is maybe the routine is a bit intense. You know, for me with Dylan, when he was growing up, it was something that I didn't sign up for. But in his communication, you know, therapy, they were using pecs. They were using communication cards. And that was not abusive to my son. In fact, he enjoyed it. It was um, it wasn't like he was having grueling hours of, you know, being down like in a work or situation that there was a therapist that would have come to our home and spent an hour with Dylan, maybe a few times a week. And it worked. And he started talking to me. I mean, he had no words at all. And one day he just went, hello, mummy. I actually thought <laughs> I was in the kitchen and um, you know, we were very young. I had Dylan, I was 21. I was, I, you know, we were just like thrown into parenthood. But I was in the kitchen washing dishes and um, I heard this little voice go, hello, mummy. And I, I thought there was a ghost because he never said anything to me. And um, we have a recording of him actually when he said that. And it was so wonderful. And the thing is when he started talking, Dylan, he really enjoyed talking. It was the, a lot of autistic people don't want to do that, but Dylan is a talker and um, he never stops talking. But like, I, I, I mean, it wasn't abuse what they did with Dylan in the communication with Dylan, but it wasn't known as ABA. I suppose back then ABA for me would have been linked to, you know, some of the horrible things we see from the past. Um, some documentaries were made. I saw a documentary in England, which was kind of distressing, but like it could be the same in school. You could have a teacher that could be abusive to a child. It's down to the person. And if a mother and father or parents are with their children and the child is happy, then, you know, I think that maybe people maybe need to think, rethink what that is, but you have to help your child to learn. Like you, I saw your video as well about um, children running onto the road. Dylan was like that. Dylan, Dylan was like running away all the time. And I used to be like having a heart attack, literally. And even our wedding day, there's actually a photo. I, there was no photos of me and my husband because we were running around after our son because he was always like that. And I was always scared, you know? Um, so looking back, you know, we, we used techniques to help him not hurt himself. But that, that's what parents do. and. I think being an autistic parent helps a lot because I can see, I suppose, what I, what I saw with my kids, especially with Dylan, because he had a lot of problems when he was small, that I was able to read almost things that would trigger him to have a meltdown. Like he could get um, very stressed with, with people that he didn't know or the faces were not familiar. I was able to uh, kind of 
get down to his level and understand and not only predict situations so he had less meltdowns and actually by the age of seven or eight he wasn't having meltdowns anymore at all i mean it was it was like i knew him i went into his kind of environment i suppose but like dylan did have help you know dylan had ot he had speech and language therapy he went to a special play school from a very early age from maybe two and a half you know i I did that because I wanted Dylan to have the best chance in his life, and I and it and it stood by him with what's happened to him recently. And he's much. He's much. Dylan, yeah. um, mm. Dylan has recently gone through cancer treatment during mm -hmm. the pandemic. Um, yeah. What was that like for your family, uh, as well as uh, Dylan, if you feel comfortable sharing for him? It was it's it was so hard. I mean, like I, I'm, <laughs> we we were we knew that Dylan was, you know, waiting for a scan. He had a lump. He got a lump on his neck, and um, you know they did his blood work, and we were waiting for the scan. And then out of nowhere, it's cancer. So we went from like just being kind of concerned and being hit with this diagnosis, and it was at the time when Ireland was having the worst cases of COVID, you know, um, really high numbers, people locked in their houses. And literally within 24 hours, I'm told that Dylan has lymphoma and that he would be starting chemo in 24 hours. So just imagine I had to um, tell Dylan that he was going to have chemo. Dylan had never been in a hospital. Dylan does not like hospitals at all. I mean, when his granny was sick a couple of years ago, he didn't want to go in. So I was thinking, how am I going to get my autistic son to even have a needle put into his neck? So first they had to do a big biopsy on his neck. And then he had to have a PET scan, which involves drinking uh, a sugary liquid, a dye, which is radioactive. So he had to be told all of that. And then we had the huge, huge issue of consent because they knew that Dylan was autistic that he you know has a disability do we tell dylan what's happening to his body do we advocate for him or does he do it himself so we had a i had i had like an hour to make this decision for my son you know i did there was no time to be wasted he had cancer and uh, we decided that dylan should be the person that you know is told this because he's 28 years old and he was amazing he sat down with the oncologist. They told Dylan he had cancer. They told him what they were gonna do. And he took it with such dignity. And he went through every round of chemo, sorry, um, with such, I don't know, I, I'm amazed by him. I mean, he just did what he was meant to do. He did the treatment plan and he never missed one session of chemo. He never got sick. I mean, he never threw up. You know, everyone was telling me he's going to throw up, that he's not going to eat his food anymore. Um, Dylan had to start loads of medicines as well, steroids, antibiotics. He was on like antiviral medications that AIDS patients take. So he had all of this going into his body. He would lost his hair, you know, his beautiful red curly hair. And um, the only way he coped, and I mean this, and my husband and I are going to write something about Dylan because it was because he had those tools. He had those tools to be an independent person, to speak for himself and to actually be able to ask questions to his oncologist. You know, I mean, 
if I hadn't given Dylan those tools or helped him when he was younger, he wouldn't have been able to do this. There's no, there's no doubt in my mind because he, he wanted, I suppose, in a way to get, you know, his goal through all this was to get back to his friends because Dylan goes to um, a service provider and he misses his friends. And when he was called for the first vaccine for COVID, which was during his chemo, um, he was so happy because he was saying, mom, I'm nearly there, you know, I'm nearly there one more round, but then we had to wait to see, you know, if chemo had worked. So we, after his last chemo, it was eight weeks, nine weeks before we knew. And we got the news last Thursday that Dylan is in remission, which is the best news in the world. And Dylan went to that appointment himself with his father and he sat with the, the oncologist and the team. And Timmy, my husband, that's his dad, hadn't, didn't have to open his mouth. Dylan did it all for himself. He let the doctor examine him. He's had problems with his feet. He's lost his toenails because of chemo. And he did it all himself. And um, I'm so proud of him. But I mean, it's because Dylan had those supports. He had a very good, um, very good teachers in school as well that helped Dylan as well. So all of those people made Dylan the strong man he is today. That's really amazing to hear and that he's in remission, first of all, and that he was able to do all of this by himself. Is there, is there anything that you wish nurses or doctors would have known about autism or about him to make the experience better? Yes, we um, I think, well, I think firstly, like when you get a diagnosis of cancer, um, like there are organizations that you can call for counseling, but they don't have anyone trained in autism at all. So I could ring up and say, I need counseling, which I did. I had to, I mean, I was, my world was shattered, you know, um, but there's nothing there for autism. Even for me as an autistic woman, talking to a psychologist or somebody that's trained to talk to people about cancer, there's nobody trained in that field. Now the nurses and the doctors are wonderful, but like there were times when they would not have known because the nurses changed. So every time Dylan goes for chemo, there's a different nurse. And he would tell me, he would come back, I didn't like that nurse, you know? <laughs> she wasn't like the, the nurse the last time. And, you know, even when he went for the vaccine, Eileen with, with Dylan, you know, he had the COVID vaccine. It wasn't even in his chart, you know? So I have to say he's autistic. Don't be stressing him out because he could get, he has OCD, Dylan has OCD. And I, I know when Dylan starts counting a lot, he counts numbers that he's stressed. And I could see this happening. And she just kept saying things that I had already told her prior not to say that would trigger him. So even when they are informed, it's like they can't keep it, you know, because it's not compulsory, there is no training. Um, so that's really important. And especially for somebody that gets a cancer diagnosis, if they're neurotypical or autistic, but it's harder for autistic people because of the sensory issues, going to hospital, smells like Dylan has a huge thing with smells he has a huge thing with um hand washing he's had that all his life he's very good at washing his hands but like he you know I I I, I he used to go to chemo with his dad I I wasn't allowed to go because of COVID there's only one person and I I used to feel his fear in me I I I'm so connected to Dylan I could feel it and um you know, I, I, I could only imagine, and I remember like 
him, him, you know, talking to me, I ring him at the hospital and he'll just say to me, are you okay, mom? He'd ask me if I was okay. That's what Dylan's like. He's such a good, a good boy. He's somebody that thinks of other people, but like, it's only because he's had that great support around him that has made him. And I mean, like, if you knew Dylan at the age of two or three, you know, and you see him now, I mean, there, there, it's a very different experience. And I, I want to be positive about that because we were told such negative things with his diagnosis that he would not do this, that he would not do that. Um, and, you know, we've proven them wrong. And I suppose it's because we've just got Dylan the support that he needed to be the beautiful person he is today, you know, and believe in himself. He has so much confidence, Eileen, like uh, Dylan and myself, um, I often say to my husband, if only I had the confidence that Dylan has, but when I'm with Dylan, he makes me feel really good about myself. So he makes me feel confident when I'm just with him. Um, he's just really rounded and strong and happy very happy and, person and in your mind thank you for sharing that what mm -hmm. makes a good autism advocate uh you know how can we do better despite our differences and what i really appreciate about one of the things you said a little bit earlier was mm -hmm. the fact that you really didn't know much about what aba was beyond your own experience and you looked it up and i really don't think many people actually understand what it is um, I mean, I'm not pretending to be an expert either. Um, so I've been called pro ABA or, you know, and I just think, cause I'm not outwardly against something that I don't understand. I, I'm therefore supportive of something when I, I think that's probably how more people should be is not just, you know, be mad at something that they don't understand completely. Um, and just on that, my understanding is if, you know, if it's an, in, if there's an individualized therapy or treatment plan that's designed to lit, help somebody live mm -hmm. their best life and be their best autistic self and it's done right, then mm -hmm. I think that's a good thing. I don't care what we call it because, you know, a lot of times it's very complicated. So meaning like, well, insurance might call it ABA right? Mm -hmm. And therefore it's billed more and it's paid more. Well, you know, if we, but if it's, you know, OT or speech that is billed under ABA, you know, we don't want to like shout from the rooftop that, you know, it's insurance fraud or something, right? Or just, and again, I'm full of, I'm not involved in any of these insurance practices. Um, but no, I, I guess what I would say is it seems to be, you know, confusing about what makes a good advocate you know, is being a good advocate shouting really loud and screaming at parents on the internet when you disagree with them and telling them they're being horrible parents to their children? Does, does that change any minds? What can we do better despite our differences? We need to we need to talk to each other firstly in a civil way. And I think that's the problem. I mean, you're not the only one that's experiencing that kind of, um, I don't know, it's, it's terrible actually, I, I'm very sad because I think it's got a lot worse over the last few years. And I think that um, there's a certain group of people that are kind of making that an ongoing issue. Like, I'm here today. I've had a lot of, you know, nasty comments said about coming on the show today. Um, but I actually want things to move forward because I want something better for my kids growing up. 
I really, really feel um, that, you know, if we don't talk about our differences, we can never resolve them. And maybe it is the wording, like you said, that's a very good point, Andrew. Um, you know, maybe the, the word ABA is something that is, I don't know, attached to something really bad for people from the past and maybe that's what needs to be done but like what's really important is that the people saying these things a lot of them don't have children that need support or don't have children that are in need of the tools like i mentioned earlier to make them independent i that for me if, if that was anything i would offer for people listening today is that your children are separate entities to you and they have to learn how to navigate the world and helping them navigate the world isn't a bad thing. Helping them to go in and ask for an ice cream themselves. I remember when my son did that actually. And I remember um, I used to work with kids with disabilities years ago. And um, I was one of the people working there that was saying, hang on, don't be choosing their ice creams, let them do it themselves. And it took a bit longer because like, that's how it, how it worked. But it was such a great thing to see the children doing that. And then I taught Dylan how to pay for his own ice cream. You know, it's a process, I, teaching Dylan to walk. I, I can go walking with my son now, and I'm not worried about him being going into the road in front of a car, but that took me years, years and years and years of doing the same thing over and over. And I walk with him, we do a walk together, 7K walk, and it's a difficult walk with hills and everything. Um, but watching him, so if a car comes along, I don't have to say anything to him anymore. He pulls into the side of the road and he stops until the car goes past. And I'm watching him do that and I'm thinking, this is amazing, this is a good thing. But intervention is not about taking away traits of autistic people. And that's really important. You can't take that away. You know, you can't make someone not autistic, um, but you can help them to enjoy their life and to be independent. And that that is not being a bad parent. And it has to stop. Actually, I'm actually at the point now where even of late, even recently, even yesterday, some of the stuff that I see really concerns me. But like, I fight for my kids and I fight for the community because I really care. But like, if someone doesn't agree with me or we have a differing view, you and me or whatever, or me and Eileen, um, that's fine. That's fine, that's your opinion. We don't attack each other, we talk about it. And do you know what? If we sat down together and talked to each other, we could probably sort a lot of this problem that we we're seeing but they they don't want to open the, the the conversation route and i suppose that's why i'm here today because i want to talk to people even if they think that i'm saying something that is something they don't like that's okay you know we have to talk to each other to work together for a better future for the community i couldn't agree more with you i mean this is the biggest issue right now is that there is no communication. I mean, it's all yelling and insults mm -hmm. and we don't achieve anything this way. And on that note, I yeah, really appreciate too that, you know, you, you did some research on ABA and um, even though, you know, you don't love it, but you still went and try to learn more about it. That's how we can advance. Um, and about the autistic thing, trying to make someone non-autistic, that's one of the biggest uh, criticism about ABA. And I really wish people would realize that, you know, teaching someone to communicate, whether that's verbal or not, teaching someone to not put themselves in danger, 
like they deserve that it's not about them being non-autistic it's about them having skills that everyone deserves you know Mm -hmm. it's it blows my mind that some people think that it would be okay to let someone be like autistic if that meant that they don't communicate and that's very frustrating for the person who can communicate if they just put themselves in danger because they don't understand that playing with the leader box and eating that is bad they run in the streets i mean that's we're not doing them any favor if we don't teach them those skills like no one bats an eyes when a kids go to school and learn math or how to a different language so why is t- teaching an autistic child skills that everyone takes for granted uh, seen as making them non-autistic it doesn't make sense to me uh, but it's, I, it's, it's, basic, it's basic parenting i mean when you yeah. are a parent you have to protect your child so we're doing that anyway i mean this is what i what i suppose the the positive reinforcement element of it which is something that we do we do it we do it without even noticing you know as as a mother good boy good girl praise is a good thing and i know that with my kids in school that it's worked you know and i suppose years ago if you want to go back to schooling in ireland when i was growing up we had corporal punishment you know they were hitting kids in schools it was it was the norm here um you know so being positive to a child making them feel good about themselves for their achievements doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong it just encourages them to learn and like to me the most important thing for our kids is to learn to read and write to have an education but for autistic children they struggle in that you know it's 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 not something that you cannot you can't go to school in my opinion and you say that an autistic child doesn't need supports in school because that is certainly not my experience with my children and my two sons not Dylan, my younger sons would be very good academically as well, like you mentioned, good grades. But it's not about the grades alone, it's about the environment, helping them in the environment because of sensory issues, because of noise, like my son would have problems with noises. And you know, that the, the teachers understand that and they give them movement breaks so that they can leave if it gets too much. So he has access to a room where he can go in this lovely sensory room and he can come back when he feels a bit better. So we fought for those supports. They haven't been given to us on a plate. Parents have had to fight for those supports. And like I said, because we have no laws in Ireland to protect autistic people, they can be taken away by the government. But if you go out there and say, I mean, I want to say this because this is important of what I see from some advocates that autistic people don't need support you know, and make that general statement, if we just leave them be, they will be fine. That is not true for every autistic person. It is not true. And in my opinion, what they're doing is actually pseudoscience. (laughs) It's, um, It's not factual. And these are the same advocates that would be campaigning, campaigning against pseudoscience or campaigning against so called abusive treatments. In my opinion, it is abusive to not help your child to be an independent an independent person. If you leave your child without supports as they grow, it's harder to teach them those basic things that lots of people take for granted, like you say, not running onto the road. You know, it's harder to teach an adult to do that than a child. If you teach a child those safety measures, they will learn. That's not being abusive, you know? Um, 
and again children have their own rights they're not you know they're not they're not extensions of of us and um you know teaching your child to read and write and to go out and be independent is a good thing i'm so happy because i can let my kids go out with those skills and, and and they're happy to do that they don't want to be stuck at home with mommy all day you know who wants to be stuck with your parents all the time they want to be teenagers they want to go out and do things but if they don't have those tools they can't do that but that's what i'm being met with i'm being met with anger if i talk about my children i'm, I'm attacked by some of these people and it's become kind of a very 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 frightening thing for me because they've they've discussed my son you know who has cancer they've they've talked about him and um it has to stop but i'm willing to sit at the table with everybody to try to find a way for us to all advocate together civilly so that we can make a good future for autistic people for our kids you know and maybe have laws in place that will protect them you know in employment and education to get children to have jobs you know when they grow up in ireland we have a very poor um statistics for employment for autistic people we're one of the worst countries in the world you know so things like that really matter and again healthcare. but like if we're all fighting what impression do we give to to the world if we're all fighting and there's all this name calling use our energy and time to be effective to bring real change for our community positive change that's the perfect way to uh to end this uh just we need to have these discussions so we can help autistic people that's that's what we all want we want the best for autistic people so we should really get together um we're yeah. going to ask you some questions, Fiona. They're called quickfire yeah, sure. questions. So yeah. you tell us the first answer that goes through your mind, okay? Yeah. What is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Don't be afraid. What do you do to relax? I write songs and I sing, I listen to music. What is your favorite food? um pasta oh, love pasta what's your favorite film or movie les amants de point neuf french movie wonderful another one i don't know mm. since you are autistic <laughs> and therefore good at math how many digits of pi do you know <laughs> i'm terrible at math there's another myth isn't it yeah. oh, just a joke question uh, what is a question you would like to ask our next guest? Who's our next guest? Is it, uh, I don't Go. know, actually. So random, you don't know who it'll be. Yeah. I think we know actually, but maybe we're just not gonna tell you. So feel free to ask the question. I would like, I would like to ask about music and autistic people and how they experience music, especially because of Andrew. Um, Andrew and I have a love of music <laughs> and um, I'd really like to ask about how autistic people uh, process music and is it differently? Is it different for them? It's uh, something that really interests me. How do you process music? Yeah. 
other than you like good music because we shared that in common how do you process how do you process i because i I just i just feel for for me and even like talking to my boys as well especially dylan that it's it's not just about listening to music it's something else and uh, that kind of interests me it's for those feelings you feel the music yeah all right well, thank and you by the so way, much. Before, before I go, actually, um, we have a band called Trouble in Love. We have a Facebook page, Trouble in Love. If people want to check out our songs, we did an album during lockdown uh, last year. So it's myself and my husband, my daughter plays as well. But Trouble in Love. Tell us uh, where people can find you online. So Trouble in Love, um, anything else? We're on YouTube, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, iTunes. We're there. We have a little, little CD. Um, an album, Trouble and Love. I mean, I'll, I'll send it to you. I think I've been annoying Andrew with some of my songs. <laughs> but um, yeah, music is know. a big part of my life, yeah. So Trouble and Love, Facebook, Spotify, YouTube, and iTunes. CD Baby, CD Baby as well, CD Baby. It's, it's for free, you know, it's, it's for the love of music. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for uh, talking to us today. It was thank you. Great. Yeah, it's lovely to meet you, Eileen and Andrew, and um, keep up the good work. Yeah. yeah thank you. Too. Yeah. Take care, guys. Take care. Bye. Bye.